invest the time in your young staff and bring them along so that they're the tradition bearers and that they adapt it to how they want to use it. We're not even taught that being a fisherman is a job anymore. Welcome to Coastal Connections, stories from the Atlantic. In this episode, you'll hear my conversations with a weir fisher and a high school teacher who are both inspired by the culture and environment. They now work to inspire and promote the value of fishing in Newfoundland and in the Bay of Fundy. Hi, I'm Dr. Sandra Eager, and my co-host today is Dr. Sarah Harper, a cherished colleague from the Shirk-funded Oceans Canada Partnership. I'll let Sarah tell you why she will bring a great perspective to the stories we'll hear today. I'm joining you today from the Pacific coast of Canada, where I live and work on the traditional ancestral and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Gohomish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. My connection to fish and fishing was really through early experiences exploring the tide pools and coastline of this amazing part of the country and of the world. Through this, I developed a deep connection to the ocean and all the life it supports, which is what has continued to inspire me as I've carved out my career in this area of fisheries. Over the past decade, my work has focused on the human dimension of ocean and marine systems with a particular focus on issues of equity. Much of my research has focused on highlighting the roles and contributions of women in fisheries around the world, and I've used data to bring to light and bring policy attention to issues of gender inequality across the fisheries sector. The stories shared by today's speakers really resonate with what I've heard from fisherwomen around the world. Let's start with Erica. I met Erica during my PhD research at the Bramber Weir. She happens to be the daughter of Darren Porter, who we briefly heard from in episode one. She is one of only a handful of still operating weir fishers who uses this traditional fishing practice. And I had the absolute pleasure of getting to go to work with her one day. As I asked a million questions while her and her crew worked diligently to sort and harvest their catch from the tide, I learned about how to fish from a weir, but also about an amazing woman with a passion for outreach and her community. I knew I had to get her on the podcast. It's like a big V, it's a funnel. So at the base of the V, there is an enclosed trap and the water stays in there so the fish remain alive and so we go in there to capture the fish with nets or we just pick them up with our hands depending on the species. The weir structure is about 2,000 feet long and 12 to 15 feet high depending on the year. You can find the weir about a kilometer to a kilometer and a half offshore in the Minas Basin and it was an off-roading adventure on the mudflats to get out there a run that they have to do multiple times a day. We work with the tides. We don't have a normal set schedule. So it actually changes every single day by like 40-ish minutes. So if we're out there at 12 p.m., we'll probably be out there again at around 12.30, 12.40 a.m. And then it cycles to like 1.20 p.m. the next day and then 2. So we're out there every single day, twice a day, from like March until August. Erica also participates in research collaborations with local organizations and universities. This is the type of two-eyed seeing Darren was talking about in episode one. I asked her to reflect on some of the work she's been a part of. We've done studies on bass. We've had many sturgeon studies go on in our weir and on our boat. We've done 
our own tagging. I part- I did my own lobster study back in 2017 and 18, where I went on a boat and tagged 3,000 lobsters and acoustically tagged 50. We have an ongoing receiver project all the time. We're always putting acoustic receivers in the water. We're big into those. Tom Cotton eel, we've done tagged shad. Gosh, we've done a lot. <laughs> wow, that's a lot of species. The ones of interest are herring, flounder, and tomcod. If they see sturgeon, striped bass, or winter and little skate, they put them back. I think I know what she's going to say, but I'm really interested in knowing what her favorite part of her job is. Instantly, I think of just bringing the community together in general, whether it's through our weir, where we, we allowed anybody to come out and view and hang out with a fish, or if you just happen to be on the beach, sometimes people will honestly just walk up to the mudflats and venture their way out. I'll kind of tell them the situation, what we're doing, um, show them different species. And on the boat, we also do a lot of tours and events and stuff. We, we also host some groups like the Terranaut Club, schools. That to me is honestly the most rewarding. And it's not even with just say children, but any age. The Terranaut Club is a group that frequents the Weir, founded by Julia Whitten, who researched skates with Erica and Darren at the Weir during her studies at Acadia University. This group is unified by the mission to create and provide opportunities for girls to recognize their own interests and seek their own futures in STEM fields and environmental advocacy. They are all about bringing young females into the science world. So I really love that. I love educating and showing children that our muddy waters are not something to be scared of and that there is life in there and that's really special to see that because if you're just driving on the road you just see muddy water and you wouldn't think of how much life is in there but once you see it it's I don't know to see the the smile on their faces and the joy oh my god it's so nice (laughs) I don't know how to explain that It's so important, especially for young women, to see themselves reflected in roles as future leaders, as scientists, and in these experiences early on that make them curious and motivated to gain the skills and knowledge and education to work in these spaces and to choose a job or a career that connects them to fish and fisheries and to want to protect the systems that allow these to exist and thrive. So that just showing them that there is fish in the water, then they have a more likely chance of protecting it. Because if you're out there fishing every day, you see what's out there. But somebody that, say, goes to work, you know, not fishing, which is most people, they do not get to see the changes each year that comes. So I think the benefit of bringing people out and showing people Even if it's just on the internet, like, hey, this is what we caught today. We used to do a fish of the day where every single day we would post a different fish and they would go online and try to guess what it is. And that's a cool little interactive game that not only educates somebody, but, you know, gets them excited for the next day to see what fish we've caught. I just think that education is power. And when you when you're educated, I mean, you're more equipped to fight for and fix what you believe in. I wholeheartedly agree with Erica, and this is why ocean literacy and outreach is so important. For resources to help your kids, friends, family, and community increase their ocean literacy, please refer to the resources in the show notes. With the fish of the day, my dad was posting that, Darren Porter, on his Facebook page, and we created this page called Minus, and in that 
somehow we decided that we wanted to do coloring pages. So I started drawing out on a program the outlines of the fish we caught. So I would take like a really good picture, a flat lay of the fish and trace it out on this program and I would put it on Facebook. So that's something cool that we started. And then we're like, hey, why don't we actually make a coloring book out of this? So now we're uh, in the process of hopefully figuring out how to do a coloring book. Who doesn't like a coloring book, honestly, of all ages? So I know I do. You can still find the fish of the day on the Minus Facebook page and keep your eyes peeled for a Bay of Fundy coloring and activity book inspired by all of the species that Erica has seen at the Weir. Our whole quest, I guess, is to have a collaborative practice in all aspects, on the water and off of it. So with this coloring book, we are trying to gather everybody that we can think of to be a part of it, to make this as robust as it can be. Like We want it to be a educational book, but still a fun, easy, effortless way to learn, I guess, where you're sitting there coloring, but you're also soaking up knowledge about our ecosystem. Erica explains to me that coloring has the ability to make everyone happy and that it's actually a form of self-care. I'd have to agree. It's clear that she's motivated to share what she sees out on and in the water with her community, whether it's through harvesting, leading tours, doing collaborative research, live demonstrations or videos, or designing coloring books, bringing people together and spreading truthful information about what she sees every day is quite inspiring. Honestly, like we are very raw in our presence in the river. Like we will show you what is there and what isn't there. We do like dad does live videos all the time while we're bringing up traps. We are very transparent. And I think that is the biggest need is for transparency. I feel like people can trust us. And I think that's the biggest goal, honestly, is to trust us with the information that we're giving out. I'm curious to hear how research and other work with local outreach organizations has impacted her community around Windsor and West Haunts. Aside from the traditional academic outputs, such as papers and theses, from the dozens of students that she's worked with over the years, I was surprised to hear that there is an infrastructure for local fish processing. Erica helps me understand why her and her family are among the few fishers left in the Windsor area. I think for one, the education is not there. That's a big one. People don't know that you can even really be a fisher as a job nowadays. You know, when you go to school and you go and pick which job you want to do. And when I did it, I was doing it on the computer. And a fisher is not even a job selection there. So it kind of stops right there. I think education's a big one. The infrastructure is not even here to make it easy for you. Even just to go get a fishing license. Just try to Google it. I have the hardest time even figuring it out for myself. Just, it's a long process, and I just don't think that Nova Scotia makes it very easy, I guess, long story short. Which is why it's so wonderful to hear about some of these really great outreach programs um, that are being done to break down some of these barriers and to empower women and youth. Honestly, my area has no for local fish. Like, we are the only people, so come support us. <laughs> There's a couple fishers in the uh, Avon River, but it's not their sole income, you know. 
when you see it around you more, say if you went to Digby, it's more of a culture there to fish. So I just don't think my area, West Hans, gives you the option to even think about fishing. If I didn't have dad, I mean, I wouldn't be fishing. I 100% know that for sure. Like I wouldn't even know how. So I don't know. It's just unfortunate is what it is. But we're trying to change that, I guess, with the education and getting people involved and stuff like that. After hearing about Erica's initiatives in the Upper Bay of Fundy, let's now travel to Eastern Newfoundland to hear about a nonprofit with similar values relating to outreach, education, empowerment, and culture. Fishing for Success was founded by Kimberly Oren and Megan Geddes, who noticed that kids were not spending much time outside anymore, and they decided to create programming to teach kids and adults about fishing culture and how to fish. Today, we hear from Kim, who conceptualized this idea when she was still a high school teacher. Let's hear a bit more about how it all started. You know, even if I was teaching chemistry or, or physics or I always took students outside and I just noticed that over the years, kids knew less and less about their own backyards, about the animals or the insects or the plants that they would find. And that, you know, that began to worry me because I felt that what had gotten me interested in science was fishing and hanging out at the fishing wharf as a kid growing up in Newfoundland, hauling out fish guts and wandering around, flipping over rocks. And uh, so kids weren't doing those kinds of things anymore. So. I quit teaching high school science and went back to graduate school in fisheries and aquatic sciences with the idea that I wanted to start a nonprofit to teach kids to fish. My idea was to, to come back home to Newfoundland where I grew up and just literally start a, a project to teach kids to fish. You might be thinking it too. Why fishing? So I wanted kids to learn to fish, not necessarily because they were going to fish for a living, but because I wanted them to be interested in the biggest problems that I felt are facing people right now. Ocean acidification, ocean warming, climate change, you know, how we're going to feed 9 billion people. And I still feel that things centered around the ocean. So here I am in Petty Harbor for the program to teach kids to fish. And it's interesting that when you get into teaching kids to fish, you realize that you need to teach more than kids and that adults don't have access to that either. Kimberly paints a beautiful picture about some important experiences she had in her community growing up and how they shaped her interests in science and culture and eventually her programming. You know, when I was growing up here, 45 years ago, that was a common thing to see kids hanging out at the community wharf. Now it's not. It's, you know, now a workplace where kids aren't expected to hang out or uh, not welcome to hang out. But then kids were welcomed. They were given work to do. They were taught to cut fish. They were taught to cut cod tongues that you could earn money cutting cod tongues. And you were part of the the important community work and you felt valued. Uh, And then you learned all this cool stuff about all the parts and pieces of the fish and if it was a boy fish or a girl fish and you could ask the elders where they found the fish and what kind of fish it was and they'd answer your questions because you know they expected that the children that they were teaching were probably going to grow up to catch fish or clean fish or process fish just like they had done and their grandparents had done. I find myself wondering how Kim ended up in Petty Harbor and if it was strategically selected. She explains that it was largely based on the rich handline fishing history and shares some stories with me. 
Petty Harbor's got a really interesting place. It's only, you know, 15 minutes outside of downtown St. John's. So you've got great access to a target population of urbanized young people so that you can develop programming and target young people. Then you've also got, you know, pre-COVID, this is where most of your tourists come in, is almost 70% of tourists would come into the St. John's area. So you've got a great revenue stream. Petty Harbor has what's called a protected fishing area, where fishing families here have protected since 1895, when it was part of the British Fisheries Act. They've protected the kind of gear that fish harvesters would use in the community. And then later, when Petty Harbor became part of Canada and gillnets became part of the technology of fishing, the fish harvesters recognized that gillnets could be a problem. One of the first things that they recognized is that a few wealthy fishermen could literally buy purchasing gillnet, they could chalk up and lock up the traditional fishing grounds. So they didn't want gillnets to be used in their traditional fishing grounds. The other reason they felt is that they could break free and contribute to ghost fishing. They didn't know to call it ghost fishing at the time. That's a term that came along later. They saw that being a problem, that your nets can break free and then you won't be able to retrieve them. They also felt that the nets could damage the bottom. Just in case you haven't heard of ghost fishing, it's a term that describes what happens when derelict fishing gear continues to fish, even after it's discarded, lost, or abandoned in the marine environment. NOAA, or the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, reports that nets or traps and pots is one of the main types of debris impacting the marine environment today, and that this gear continues to fish and trap animals, entangle and potentially kill marine life, and smother habitat, and act as a hazard to navigation. If this has caught your attention, don't worry. We're going to be talking about marine debris and ocean pollution in upcoming episodes, so stay tuned. So they approached uh, the Canadian government, which of course, remember, Newfoundland only became part of Canada in 1949. So in 1960, they began approaching the Canadian government when gillnets were that new technology on the market and continually petitioned the Canadian government and by active counsel, they got written into Canada Fisheries Act that only handline fishing would be allowed for cod in protected fishing grounds in Petty Harbor. So it's three miles along the shoreline and then three miles out. So that was really an important story when teaching young people about fishing, that to bring children along in the traditions that it be grounded in something our community has supported a sustainable form of fishing for cod for many generations, and that they had the foresight to see gear restriction as a valuable way of protecting the stock for future generations and a valuable way of protecting livelihood, as many fishermen and the families as possible, and also protecting habitat for the fish to come for that form of the most important reasons for setting up a project here in Petty Harbor to teach young people to fish. I love how Kim makes me think about fish in a way I haven't for a while now, since being underwater and watching them from below. It's hard to imagine such things after being cooped up in an apartment for a year, but it's true. Fish are beautiful and important for reasons much beyond sustenance. Kim draws inspiration and teachings for programming from her partner, Leo. She explains his role in fishing for success, and gives us an idea of what she would be up to right about now if COVID wasn't a current barrier for tourism. He's our number one elder, our heritage interpreter, and he's got all the cool traditional skills that I tap into. I'm the academic person and he's the, the skills, traditional skills person. So if it was pre-COVID, <laughs> yeah, we would be organizing tours and events 
because even when the, the tourists are here, we're having community events. So we would be planning pop-ups at Rocket Bakery and teaching people how to weave rope or going to one of our local museum partners and having events there with, you know, 20 to 30 people and teaching fishing skills other than teaching actual fishing, but fishing skills, whether it's knitting net or weaving rope or fish paintings. You know, we take squid or capelin around and you can actually take an impression of the fish when you smear some paint on it and you press the paper to the fish and then you have this really beautiful piece of artwork. And so you get people to reconnect with fishing through another way rather than just the fish as food or the fish as an activity. Because when you think about fishing, you know, we tend to have these like two ends of it. We tend to think of fish as a commercial activity and those people feed us when we when we buy the fish from them. Or we have this idea of fish as a recreational activity that's something that the guys do on the weekend. And there's, you know, there's no measure or thought about all of this other grand stuff in between where um, fishing has you know, inspired us to create literature, music, or artwork, or we, we don't think about the human connections that we've had to fish and fishing. So it's really a shame. So we try to get people to get in touch with those kinds of other things and just see the beauty in the fish because they, they really are gorgeous. Let's jump into some specific programs. Kim is passionate about giving girls and women fishing experiences, and she does this through Girls Who Fish. Sarah, can you give us an overview of women in fishing? Perhaps a perspective on why it's so important to have women and girls involved in fishing. And all over the world fish, but in many cases, this fishing looks different than that done by men and is generally overlooked and undervalued. From Ghana to the Philippines to the coast of Brazil, fishing activities dominated by women are much more like beach combing or tide pooling. And from the untrained eye could look just like women and children hanging out at the beach. But this is fishing, although sometimes referred to as gleaning. And these activities are a major source of food and nutrients in many parts of the world. But these are very much overlooked from a policy and management perspective, which is problematic. So for my PhD project, I tried to put numbers on this to highlight just how important women's fishing activities are for food security, and to coastal livelihoods. And I estimated that around the world, women's fishing activities account for approximately 3 million tons of catch over the course of a year, which translates into billions of dollars in revenue. And this is just their contribution from fishing. Women are also involved in processing, in trading, in selling, in net, in gear making, and overall make up at least half of those employed in fisheries around the world when you consider the whole process from catching a fish to getting it onto someone's plate. And despite these major contributions to fisheries, women face many barriers to participating in and benefiting from fisheries. And part of this stems from a lack of recognition, but also a lack of representation in management and policy. Now, in North America and in Canada, women face barriers as well. But these barriers are often less visible than in other places, but they do exist. 
So women working on boats face gender-based discrimination. There's been some really interesting articles that have uncovered some of these real challenges faced by women on board vessels as deckhands facing harassment. But women also lack the mentorship and training to ensure their autonomy in the sector as boat and license owners or fishing business operators. So even though these barriers may not be visible, they are real and limiting. When you look at the commercial fishery, about 20% of fish harvesters, registered fish harvesters are women, but yet less than 2% of fishing enterprises are owned by women. So if you gave those statistics in any other kind of career, people would be horrified and up in arms and we need to do something with this. The gender inequity in this profession is, is terrible. We need to have targeted programming to change this. But, you know, there's nothing going on about it. If we're talking about creating a society where gender equality is a real thing, then we can't leave any one face untouched. There's also the issue about women in fishing. They are involved in fishing. They're just not involved in certain areas of fishing. Women are involved in the work of conservation or they're doing the science, but they're not making policy decisions or they're not on the boat. They're on the process floor, but they're not involved in getting on the boat, making the policy decisions. And that kind of thing needs to change. So we started Girls Who Fish and started to change that. We encouraged members of our Girls Who Fish program to start earning their certifications, whether it's through the recreational end of it or working towards the commercial end of it, that they can then pursue whatever it is they would like to pursue. Added to these barriers women face to participating as fishers or managers, there's also the issue of lack of recognition for the informal and indirect roles often but not always played by women in fishing communities in terms of bringing people together. I spoke on a panel hosted by the BC Young Fishermen's Network on women in fishing a couple of months ago. And something that came up that was shared by one of the female fish harvesters on the panel, which is something I've heard from people in fishing communities along the coast, is that women really are the backbone of fishing communities. And I think this is such an important and powerful point, especially in the current moment, at a time when fishing communities and cultures are under threat. Social capital is so important in terms of keeping this tradition an essential part of fisher folk identity alive. These are roles that are often brought by women in the community as community organizers, as teachers and caretakers. But these roles aren't always recognized or valued say, going out on a boat and hauling in a big catch, but they are so important in the sense of community resilience and well-being. Kim tells me about research that compared bravery between girls and boys, and it's the same until about puberty. Then societal norms creep in. Perhaps motivated by chivalry, girls and women may find themselves watching someone else light the fire or put the bait on the hook. Kim points out that what all these actions are doing are allowing the boys to have the experiences. Girls Who Fish is all about allowing girls and women to figure out things they've never been exposed to because someone else jumped in. It's not just a physical bravery, too. It's about everything else. It's about 
habits in school and what they step forward for in their volunteer work and then later when they're in their jobs whether or not they will volunteer for the harder tasks or will they speak up in the boardroom and so all of that kind of bravery all starts to back off around puberty and so how do we do something about it so you get women together and then there's no guys around except that we joke it's girls who fish and leo so you're going to have to put the worm on the hook if we go freshwater fishing or you're going to have to take the cod off the hook and you've got to learn how to drive the boat. And so, so that's what happened. They soon started to notice that many people participating in their programs were fairly privileged and university educated. They had imagined that girls who fish would be multi-generational with moms and daughters, as well as different ethnicities, cultures, and demographics. So they asked themselves what the barriers to marginalized people participating in outdoor activities was. You know, we want to teach fishing to everybody, which that's really our mission. So then we started to reach out to partner nonprofit to invite their members uh, to go fishing. Girls Who Fish have a project called uh, Women Sharing Heritage, WISH. And so for three months during the end of the summer, volunteers from Girls Who Fish get together with young women from the Association for New Canadians. And every two weeks for three months, we get together and we do berry picking and rope weaving and hiking and we go fishing and squid painting. And then ANC members will pick some activities and share their cultural activities with us. And we're all richer because of it. It's uh, really wonderful. These kinds of programs are so important for breaking down barriers. I can't emphasize that enough. They shift perspectives and expectations, which is really what we need. Gender isn't the only or sole barrier here, though. Many dimensions of a person's identity, such as age or race and class and citizenship status, also factor in. And these can make existing gender barriers even more pronounced. So fishing for success is really tackling these barriers and breaking them down in a way that has the potential to help people not only overcome these barriers, but to transform social norms that hopefully one day soon, these barriers won't exist in the first place. And this is what we so desperately need in the world today, connection to people and nature. And this is really at the heart of what Fishing for Success is doing. So I'm super excited. We have volunteers and we have Canada Summer Job students. We have some who've been with us five years, two years, three years. Uh, we do have some you know, elders in the community who volunteer for us also. One of the things that's important to us that when we take on volunteers or Canada Summer Job students is that we teach them the skills. You know, so Leo teaches them how to knit net. I teach them how to weave rope and so that they can then lead activities just like we might lead them. This intergenerational knowledge transfer reinstills the natural mentorship programs that existed in the communities of Newfoundland and Labrador when Kim was growing up. Here's an example of what she means. In Newfoundland and Labrador, where people were working around the community wharf, and you saw people working around the splitting or the filleting table or something, they were adults and children, probably six, seven and up, and the adults were teaching the kids. And it was this natural mentorship that developed because 
the kids had some real helpful work that they could do, whether it was how to bale hay or how to split fish or whatever the community work happened to be. It's just been the way that humans have always learned. And we've lost that. We take our kids off to piano and soccer and, and occupy their time, but we're, we're not engaging our children in the work of the community and you know allowing our kids to really have meaningful natural mentorships of learning the traditional work of, of the family. Yeah, it's too bad because kids are missing out. Through Fishing for Success, we're trying to recreate that community wharf feeling where you know, the elders are, are teaching the youngsters and passing the traditions down. And then when the youngsters get the traditions, they make them their own and they, and they tweak them as they should. I asked him what was on her wish list to boost her impact and further support her work. And she provided a handful of specific reasons, including governmental change to increase their access to fish. The federal government can help us by giving us access to fish with a community fishing quota for cods. Very specific ways that the province can help us because the province controls um, what happens to the fish once it comes out of the water. We would like to be able to sell fish once we have access to it so that we can provide the young people with an entrepreneurial experience. We talked about mentorship and internships earlier and so that they can get their feet wet and what that looks like. But those are some very concrete ways. We'd also like the wording for recreational ground fish fishery changed. We teach children to fish. We do not teach them that to kill a fish for food is a recreation. Like other predators kill other animals to eat them, we, we do the same thing too. So we kill a fish, we kill it quickly and humanely. That's not a recreation. In addition to supporting social enterprise, mentorship and internships, as well as career development in her community, the impact of Fishing for Success in their local community is shown through the last program we'll hear about today, Fish for Fridays. It's a food insecurity program that arose with community partners as a response to COVID. Fish for Fridays is a project of Fishing for Success and various community groups in St. John's and Petty Harbor that reconnects people to fish as food. And it's a prepared meal project or a fresh fish delivery project. And we've delivered prepared meals through our volunteers and um, community group volunteers on Fridays during COVID lockdowns. If you're inspired to replicate something like Fishing for Success in your area, I know Kim would be keen to help. Look for her contact information and social media handles in the show notes. Lastly, I ask her what are some things that anyone could do to connect with the fishing culture and traditions in their area. And right now we've got Fishing for Success at Island Rooms. We'd love to have Fishing for Success at, you know, fill in the blank. You know, every community that's trying to save the traditional fishing stage and shed, we'd love to be able to expand. This episode really makes me miss my outdoor education days. Let's recap what we heard from Erica. I just think the main goal is education. Like education is power with anybody in general. They're not going to protect something that they don't know or don't understand or don't even believe is, say, a problem, right? If you don't know what's there, you're not going to protect it. We then heard from Kim, who helped us understand gender equality in fishing and how her programs seek to address this ongoing issue. Both guests spoke to the value of intergenerational mentorship and the importance of learning about the world around us. 
so you have to make certain that you invest the time in your young staff and bring them along so that they're the tradition bearers, that they become the future tradition bearers, and that they adapt it to how they want to use it. Let's go to Sarah to see what her thoughts are on the main messages from our guests. What I heard and took from these wonderful stories we heard today is about the importance of on-the-ground work in communities, which is critical to breaking down barriers, whether those barriers are to participating in fisheries as fisheries managers or scientists leading research to address climate change or marine pollution. These are often gender-related barriers, but also relate to things like age, ethnicity, and other aspects of identity that can limit people's ability to engage meaningfully. What I think both Erica and Kimberly so nicely highlight is that if we are to move the dial on gender equality, where women and girls, men and boys have equal access to participate in fisheries, we need targeted programs and opportunities to mentor and expose those who continue to face barriers to these opportunities. The outreach work that we heard about today really highlights the importance of mentorship and internship to empower women and youth and newcomers to Canada in order to keep fishing culture and the associated ecological knowledge alive and thriving. I'm already thinking about starting a West Coast version of Fishing for Fridays. So thank you so much for bringing together these great speakers today. Back to you, Sandra. Thanks for listening to Coastal Connections, Stories from the Atlantic. Today we heard about some opportunities right in our backyard to get re-inspired by the culture, biology, value, and sheer wonder of fish and fishing. Help us promote the importance of ocean literacy in Canada to your kids, siblings, friends, and family. Take them outside and encourage more intergenerational sharing of experiences. To connect with the people you've heard on this podcast, including fishers and guests, visit us on the Coastal Roots website at www.coastalroots.org. If you'd like to share your story with us, and we hope you will, drop us a line at stories at coastalroots.org. Coastal Connections Stories from the Atlantic is a production of Coastal Roots Radio through partnership with the University of Guelph and Memorial University of Newfoundland. We will continue to bring you positive stories from Atlantic Canada and are aiming to bring you a new episode at least once a month. Next episode, we talk to Sean Bath from Clean Harbors Initiative and find out how he went from a sea urchin diver to cleaning up Newfoundland's harbors. Also, he gives us a sneak peek into his new documentary, Hell or Clean Water. Hope to see you there.